Let's pray again together, shall we? Father, thank you for your word that you have made yourself known to us, and we pray now that as we study John 11, you would uh, teach us by your spirit. Open our eyes to see what we need to see. Help us apply these truths to our lives. Uh, Open our ears, Lord. Uh, We pray you just remove distraction from our hearts, and uh, Lord, we we come to uh, hear from you and look to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, welcome to FBC, everyone. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, just want to say I'm so glad that you are here. And I want to invite you to join us in John chapter 11, verse 45. As we just heard it read aloud, that's where we're going to be spending some time together this morning. Also, a heads up, we're having uh, communion at the end of the message. And so you might want to just get a head start on opening those cups because they take about 30 minutes or so to open. So you can start working on that now so that you're ready for the end of the service. Um, I want to ask you if you can remember a time where you have felt threatened. A time you felt threatened. Maybe like, by my mom this morning on my way out the door to church. Or maybe by my grandma when I was a kid and I was acting out. Or by my spouse when I didn't clean up like I said I would. Husbands, maybe you've done that a time or two. I, I hope that you haven't been threatened by uh, the KGB or organized crime syndicates. I hope you haven't been threatened with violence, but I do want to ask you to think of a time where you feared you might lose something important to you. A time where it, it felt like someone or something was positioning to do you harm. I can think of a time like this in my life. I remember it was when I was in seminary. Amber and I were living out in Denver before either of our kids were born, attending seminary, and we were participating in uh, this local church out there that we loved. And I was able to use my gifts there and learn and grow and saw this as a great opportunity as a young seminary student to get experience in ministry, even if it was just as a volunteer at first. And I kind of liked being the kind of, you know, young and up-and-coming pastor in training at this church. At least that's how I saw myself. I don't know if anyone else saw me that way. But I liked that feeling. But then the church announced one Sunday morning that we were hiring a new pastor who, uh, not a lead pastor, but a new worship pastor who just happened to be a seminary student. I know. And everyone was excited. And they they showed, you know, his picture up on the screen. His name was David, and his wife was Taylor, and they should be on the cover of magazines because they're really beautiful people. And everyone's all excited about this new pastor who's a seminary student in training, coming to our church, and they're going to use their gifts and be a blessing. Everyone's grateful and excited. But you know what I felt? I felt threatened. And it was petty, and it showed my insecurity, but I was not looking forward to his arrival because now I wasn't going to be the exciting, young, shiny, new seminary student at the church. And other people were going to like him more and sing his praises more. And I felt like my position and my status in the church was threatened. Maybe you can relate to something kind of petty like that. Maybe something more significant in your life. The text this morning is going to show us a group of people who were threatened. 
And they felt threatened by Jesus. And we're going to see how they respond quite poorly. And it's going to help us hopefully respond in a better way. You saw how it starts in verse 45. Let's look at it again. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. If you were with us last week, you remember what happened, right? John chapter 11, Jesus performs his greatest miracle, his greatest sign to date. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Amazing. And some, the text tells us, believe, right? The details of the aftermath are sparse, but some believe in him. While others, we see, do not. Instead, they go, what? They go to talk to the Pharisees, the guys in charge, and not in a celebratory way. They're not relaying the news with joy. No, there's concern. And so much so that a special meeting of the Sanhedrin is called, verse 47 tells us. Now think of the Sanhedrin as the Supreme Court of Israel. There was a council made up of priests and elders in the land, Pharisees and Sadducees, about 70 men in total. It was the highest court, the highest jury in the land. They had the responsibility to hold people to the Mosaic law, to teach the law, to ensure that prophetic claims were evaluated. We joked in seminary that as we had to take our oral exams, our exit exams at the end of seminary, that in order to pass, we had to go before the Sanhedrin and present our paper. (laughs) And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus in frequent conflict with religious leaders of his day, right? These are the guys. This is the group, and they, they call an emergency session. And if you have ever been on a board or a staff, or some leadership team, and an impromptu emergency council is called, it's not usually for something good, right? So they say, let's get the boys together, we got to talk. Verse 47, they called a meeting. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So the council comes together and they say, hey guys, we have a problem. And the problem is Jesus. He's performing these signs. People are getting really excited about him. And if we don't do something, bad things are going to happen. Right? Verse 48, what are they worried about? Everyone will believe in him, they say. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And this is all prompted by Jesus' great sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. And rather than seeing that as something to celebrate and stand in awe at the work of God in their midst, they instead, what? They say, this is a problem. See, for the Jews in the first century, they were overshadowed by the Roman Empire. Rome was in charge. Rome was in power, and they only acknowledged one king, Caesar. And so any sort of sign of revolt or rebellion against the empire would be crushed, squashed, because they wanted peace 
They wanted things to stay quiet. They wanted to stay in power. So things were often tense in the region because the Jews didn't want to make too much noise and have the Romans come in and kind of crack down on them. And there was a history for the Jews in recent memory for them of revolts and how uh, they had tried to fight back against Rome and it didn't particularly go well. And so the Sanhedrin, those in power in Jesus' day, were trying to avoid such circumstances. We're trying to keep the favor of the people and keep things quiet so that the Roman authorities wouldn't come in because they were making too much noise. And so they're worried. They're threatened by Jesus. He's making such a stir that Rome is going to take notice that the people, we're going to lose the favor of the people too because they're going to start following him and, and believing in him. We're going to lose our, what do they say, our place, our temple, our nation, our privileged position, our power. Rome is going to say, hey, you guys aren't doing your job. We're going to have to come in and crack down and make sure someone else here can be in leadership. If you look at verse, verse 48, it's just dripping with irony. Maybe You probably already picked up on that, right? As you read verse 48, they're saying, we've got to do something about this Jesus guy. There's so many layers of irony in this verse. It's ironic because the thing that they think will ruin the nation, belief in Jesus, is the very thing that the nation most desperately needs in order to be saved. It's ironic because even though they go on to kill Jesus and get rid of him, their plan right, succeeds in a sense, the very thing they feared happening, Rome coming in and conquering them, still happens. Right? They get rid of Jesus, but then what, in A.D. 70, Rome comes in, conquers the people, destroys the temple. So even though they try to prevent it, it happens anyways. It's ironic because in their attempts to get rid of Jesus, and squash the Jesus movement, so to speak. It leads him to the cross and resurrection and glory and the Jesus movement exploding throughout the world. So much irony in verse 48. It, it would make us laugh if it weren't so tragic. In hindsight, the Sanhedrin actually looks quite silly, right? Who are they to think that they could stop Jesus, the true king of Israel, from taking his throne? They said, we like what we have going on here. We don't want Jesus to mess that up. So let's get rid of him. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 21, you're probably familiar with it, where He's telling this parable against the religious leaders of his day. And he sets up the story like this. He said there was a man who, who owned a vineyard. And he planted a vineyard. And he set it up all well. And then he left. And he entrusted his vineyard to tenants. People to steward his vineyard. They weren't the owners. But they were in charge for a time. They worked for him. But while he was off in a far land, he sent messengers to them. And what did they do? They they beat the owner's messengers. They killed some of them. And so the owner said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son. Surely the tenants will honor my son. But they kill him too. 
thinking this is an opportunity to overthrow the heir and, and hold power for ourselves. And Jesus says, do you think the tenants are going to get away with that? What do you think the owner is going to do? He says the owner is going to come back and remind them who's really in charge, and that's a huge euphemism. So the Sanhedrin are like these tenants who think they're owners when truly they're just stewards. They're trying to cling to power that's not rightfully theirs, and they look quite silly. They weren't meant to keep their power in position. They're supposed to honor, to hand it over to the true king to whom it belongs. Now here's where this gets tricky. It's easy for us to look at them and this little secret meeting and see how silly they looked, how foolish they were. And it's much harder for us to see the same attitude in our own hearts. How was church today, honey? It was, it was okay. The pastor compared us all to the Sanhedrin who plotted to kill Jesus. But really, we, we see a similar attitude in our own hearts. If we let Jesus go on like this and have his way and don't get rid of him, he's going to shake things up in my life. He's going to mess with me. He's going to call me to do some things I don't know I want to do. And I, quite frankly, like this little cardboard throne I've set up over here, and I don't want him to come in and change things. I like being in charge. We all do, don't we? We often joke about our four-year-old daughter, Zoe, that we need to find a small country for her to run because she is so bossy and likes to be in charge. Right? It starts from a very young age. We all experience this. We say, you know what, if, if Jesus is in charge, then I'm going to lose some of my authority. I'm going to lose my position, my power, my ability to call the shots. And so the Sanhedrin looked at Jesus and saw him as a threat, and we often look to Jesus and see him as a threat. And in one sense, he absolutely is. He is a threat to our autonomy. There's only one throne. And think about it. His invitation to us is what? If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. If you want to follow me, you have to die. So I have something better for you. But first, you're going to have to die to yourself. First, it's going to feel like loss. It's going to feel like death. And if we've never experienced that, you know, we're like, you know, following Jesus hasn't really cost me much. We should wonder if we've really understood the invitation in the first place. To come die to yourself, follow me. See, following Jesus means, again, we're not in charge. And so then we're going to have to do some things that we naturally on our own wouldn't want to do. He's going to call us to love people that we naturally wouldn't want to love. Because I want you to love your enemies. Even those who persecute you, do good to them, love them, pray for them. And as we've joked before, it's hard enough for us to love people that love us, love people in our families. And Jesus, I want you to love even your enemies. I don't know if I want to do that. So, you know, I want to teach you how to live with generosity, how to give generously. Your money and of your time, 
We're like, you know what, quite frankly, I, I, I want to be selfish. I prefer just buying more toys. And so um, I don't know if I want to do that, Jesus. And he says, well, this is my way. And he calls us to sacrifice and generosity. He says, you know what, if, if I'm going to be your Lord and Savior, it means that I, I call the shots. And that includes your relationships, right? How you handle yourself in, in your marriage, your friendships, your romantic relationships, how you're considering um, what you do with your body. It's not just up to you. And see, for a lot of us, for all of us, the problem is that at the end of the day, we want to do what we want to do. And we don't always want to surrender to Jesus and his ways. And yet, he's going to call all of us to do so in different ways. It's going to look different for each of us, but they're all going to be points where there's, there's tension in how I want to live, what I think is best for me, and how Jesus is calling me to live. And so the Sanhedrin is, is threatened. They don't want Jesus to come in and mess with them, cause them problems, threaten their position, their power. And so they come up with a plan. Verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Strong start. And then verse 50. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Fascinating verse. So interesting when he says here. Think about this. Uh, in the midst of this closed door meeting, this council, the high priest says, I got a plan. Don't you guys realize? It's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation should perish. So here's a plan. Let's have one man die. Let's sacrifice Jesus in a sense. Let's get rid of Jesus for the good of the nation. We need to get rid of Jesus. It's better that one man should die than that the whole nation should perish. And then Jesus had stir up this trouble and Rome comes in and conquers the temple and causes all these problems and this upheaval. So he'll be sacrificed so that we and our nation will not perish by the hand of Rome. Interesting, right? Caiaphas is talking about sacrifice, about substitution, Jesus for the people. And yet, he's not talking about it in the way that we normally talk about it as Christians, right? When we think about sacrifice and Jesus' substitutionary death, we think of what? Him going to the cross for our sins, dying in our place, so that we could be forgiven and have new life in him. But that's not what Caiaphas means. And so look what John says afterwards in verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So notice what John says. John adds some commentary here to what was just said. What the high priest just said was not said on his own. They were not just his words. So whose words were they then? Seems like the very words of God. He says this is considered prophecy, what he's saying. You notice that? A word not just from him, but ultimately from God. One scholar put it this way. The intentions of the Jewish leadership to kill Jesus 
fit perfectly within the divine intentions of God. So much so that Caiaphas' words were quite literally prophetic. So the high priest's statement was saying much more than he realized. He was an unwitting prophet. He didn't realize what he was doing, but what he was saying, God was actually using to uh, pronounce a deeper reality. In his mind, Jesus will die for the people so that Rome won't come in and conquer our nation. For him, this was just an expedient political decision. Make our life a little easier, clean things up here, move along. But in reality, we know that Jesus would die for the people, but as a sacrifice for sin in our place. Isn't God incredible? (laughs) It's so amazing. God uses this, this wicked high priest who's plotting to kill Jesus, and he uses him to preach the gospel without even knowing it. It's amazing. He preaches the gospel without even being aware of it. The gospel of Jesus' death on behalf of the people. His substitutionary death for us. He would die so that we could live. Because we, the people, deserve death and judgment and condemnation for our sin. And yet, Jesus would take all that upon himself so that whoever believes in him through faith would be forgiven, united to him, given new life, adopted into the family of God. And so, as amazing as the miracles of Jesus have been, and they've been amazing, and as profound as his teaching is, it's been profound, the the heart of the message remains his sacrificial death for us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So he takes this scheming, wicked high priest and uses him to preach the gospel of Christ crucified. But from their perspective, verse 53, the plan is set, right? So verse 53, it says, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So they're plotting. They have a plan in place, and yet how the text is unfolding, what John has just told us, makes us wonder whose plan is it really? Somehow, in the mystery and sovereignty of God, we see their plans aligning with the intentions of God to bring about salvation. And by trying to stop the plans of God, they're actually fulfilling them. It makes us think of uh, Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts Chapter 2, verse 23, where Peter says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. We see the same reality, right? This is God's deliberate plan to bring about salvation. And hey, you guys are still guilty for carrying it out. Or verse uh, 20 of Genesis chapter 50, right? The famous Joseph story. Joseph is sold into slavery. He comes with, uh, face-to-face with his brothers again later in life, and he tells them what? Hey, guess what? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Same idea, right? The council intended to harm Jesus, and yet God intends it for good and uses it to accomplish 
salvation. Which reminds us of a few things. First, God is a God of redemption and reversal. He takes even the strongest blow from the enemy. They're scheming and plotting to kill Jesus, the Son of God. He takes it and uses it for good as part of his plan for salvation for the world. And so he can take the places in our lives that feel most hopeless and most broken and the things that feel irredeemable. And he can redeem them. And he can reverse them. He can take our place of greatest pain and use it for great purpose. We also see here, and this is big, that Jesus' kingdom is coming either way. They're fighting against it. They're trying to stop it. It's not going to work. Okay, Jesus' kingdom is coming either way. They're fighting against it. God, again, masterfully, somehow, in his sovereign, mysterious will, uses that to bring about his good plans. Verse 51, Caiaphas thinks that they have this great scheme to put an end to the Jesus movement, and yet he is preaching the gospel without knowing it, prophesying the plans of God. Jesus' kingdom is coming either way. I think back to my time in Denver at our church there when we hired David as our, one of our new pastors. And as I've reflected on this event in my life, I was like, you know what? Either way, he was showing up. Right, he's coming either way. And so my only decision is how am I going to respond to that? I can't stop him from showing up. I mean, I guess I could you know, cut his brakes in the Denver winter and slash his tires. And, you know, I, I could have done some stuff, you know. Uh, but realistically, you know, there, there was nothing short of going to jail that I really could have done to, to stop it. And so, even my little petty, insecure heart had to work through it. And then I found a way to, to embrace him. And David and his wife, Taylor, uh, just became some of our best friends in the whole world. And we still talk to them today, and we love them and are so grateful for how God brought them into our lives. He took something that I thought was a threat, but it really wasn't. It was just pure joy. We talked to him this week, let him know I was using him as a sermon illustration. And I was like, but don't worry, you are going to be compared to Jesus in the illustration. So... It's okay. And he was like, okay, I'm cool with that. So David, Taylor, if you're listening, we love you guys, and you've meant so much to us. But again, they were coming either way. And so the, the only question left up to me is, how will I respond? Will I see it as a threat? Will I work against him? Will I stay bitter? Or will I embrace his arrival and see it as a gift from God? Friends, Jesus' kingdom is coming either way. God will accomplish his will either way. His plans and purposes will come to pass. And so we have a decision. We can either stay threatened and work against God and run away from him and try to hold on to our little castle, or we can embrace his kingdom, surrender to him. See, at that council meeting, what the Sanhedrin should have done, so we see the signs, we see who this guy is, we know the scriptures, 
So rather than get rid of Jesus, let's surrender to him as king. Friends, what if losing our power and our authority and our autonomy isn't death, but it's life? What if surrender to Jesus and his ways is not slavery, but death? Or excuse me, not slavery, but freedom. What if? So friends, if you feel like Jesus is a threat to your way of life, your autonomy, you are right. He is. But again, what if being part of Jesus' kingdom and surrendering to him is so much better than holding on to your little castle ever could be? We see the result in the text. Look at verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover, and they kept looking for Jesus. For the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And so chapter 11 ends with this building tension, this plot to arrest and kill Jesus, his withdrawal until the appointed time, no longer moving about publicly because of their plans. The stage is set. This is kind of the end of the first half of the book of John. And the stage is set for the second half, which pretty much takes place exclusively with the last week of Jesus' life leading to the cross. But for this morning, we we pause, we see this scheming, secret meeting, and we remember Jesus' kingdom is coming either way. And so the choice for us is will we see it as a threat and fight against it, or will we embrace him and surrender. One of the ways that we do that as a church family is by taking communion together. And so um, hopefully you've gotten those cups open by now. And we're going to take the elements because when we take communion, we are remembering Jesus as he told us to do. To take the elements, his broken body and his shed blood represented Remembering him, his sacrifice on the cross for our sins in our place. We proclaim his death until he comes again. And so as we take these elements, there is this proclamation even still that Jesus rose from the grave. He's alive. He's coming again. And so, friends, I'm going to give us just a moment to pray. And then we'll take the elements together as a church family. Jesus, we... We look to you now and we we come to remember you, your work on the cross, your death for us, how amazingly the gospel is preached here without Caiaphas, the high priest, even knowing it. It's better for one man to die than the whole nation should perish. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for us. You sacrificed yourself for the forgiveness of sins. For our salvation, we we thank you. And Jesus, I want to pray now that just for anyone here this morning who is 
holding on to a part of their hearts or their life that they don't want to give over to you. I pray for any of us this morning that feel particularly threatened by you because you in your power and in your goodness are calling us to surrender. Maybe it's, a, again, a, a practice, a habit, a, a relationship, uh, a pattern, something that we're engaged in and you're calling us away from it to change or to start something new. That's scary, Lord. I pray just that you'd give us faith. Help us surrender to you. We remember you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance.